Chapter Twelve of Ruth Erskine's Son by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Accident or Design? Mrs. Burnham had stood for a full minute irresolute. Then she had spoken in her usual tone, explaining to Ellen that the friend she had intended to take out would not be able to go in a livery carriage. She would herself make plain to her why the drive must be deferred until another time. The mistake had occurred by her neglecting to explain to her daughter the morning's plans. Then she had turned and slowly retraced her steps. She had seen and been humiliated by the flush on Ellen's face and the flash in her eyes. It was humiliating to think that her maid was indignant over the way she was being treated by her daughter. It is probably well that she did not hear the maid's exclamation, the horrid cat! If I only dared to tell Mr. Erskine all about it! Ruth Burnham had gone downstairs again after a time. She had changed her street dress first, and made a careful at-home toilet. She had given certain additional directions to the cook, with a view to doing honor to their unexpected guests. She had made a special effort to have Ellen understand that all was quite as it should be, and had sternly assured herself that such was the case. If she could not sympathize with the sudden movements of young people on hearing of the coming of friends, she deserved to be set aside as too old to be endurable. It was absurd in her to be so wedded to an old custom, just as though any other day in the week would not do as well as Friday. Then she had gone to the living-room, which was Erskine's favorite of the entire house. It is such a homey room, Mamma," he used to say, away back in his early boyhood. When it had been refurnished, or at least renewed, with a view to Erskine's homecoming, his mother had taken pains to preserve the sense of hominess, and had seen to it that his pet luxuries, sofa pillows, were in lavish evidence. It was a charming room, very long and many-windowed, with wide, low window seats, and tempting cosy corners, piled high with cushions so carefully chosen as to size and harmony of color, that they were in themselves studies in art. There was a smaller room opening from this, and nearer to the front entrance, which was used as a reception room, and was furnished more after the fashion of the conventional parlor. But guests who, as Erskine phrased it, really belonged, were always entertained in the living room." In the doorway of this room the mistress of the house had stopped short and looked about her in astonishment. It wore an unfamiliar air. The easy chairs, each one of which she had made a study until it had seemed to have been created for the particular niche in which it was placed, had every one changed places, and to the eyes of the mistress of the house looked awkward and uncomfortable. But that was foolish, she assured herself quickly. Chairs, of course, belonged wherever their friends chose to place them. There were other changes. The window seats had been shorn of some of their largest and prettiest cushions, and a little onyx table that had occupied a quiet corner was gone. It had held a choice picture of Erskine's father, set in a dainty frame, and near it had stood a tiny vase which was daily filled with fresh blossoms. Picture and vase and flowers had disappeared. "'Ellen,' Mrs. Burnham had said, catching sight of the girl in the next room, "'what has happened here? Has there been an accident?' "'No, um,' said Ellen, appearing in the opposite doorway, duster in hand. 
"'It wasn't any accident, ma'am. It was orders. She didn't want such a lot of pillows here,' she said. It looked for all the world like a showroom, or as if it had been got ready for a church fair. Those was her very words.' "'Never mind the pillows, Ellen.' Mrs. Burnham had spoken hastily, and was regretting that she had spoken at all. "'It is the table, and especially the picture about which I am inquiring. I hope the picture is safe. It is the best one we have.' "'It's all safe, ma'am. I looked out for that. But that was orders, too. She said the room was too full and looked cluttery, and she said that only country folks kept family pictures in their parlors.' and she had me take the table and the picture and the vase up into the back attic. She said the vase was a nuisance. It was always tipping over, and she didn't want it around in the way. Of course I had to take them. You told me to obey orders. Ellen's indignation was getting the better of her usual discreetness. It was her tone and manner that recalled the elder woman to her senses. She spoke with decision and dignity. "'Certainly, Ellen. Why should there be occasion for mentioning that? Of course Mrs. Erskine Burnham's orders are to be obeyed equally with my own, or, if they conflict at any time with my own, give hers the preference, especially should the parlors and sitting-rooms be arranged just as she wishes. Young people care more about such little matters than we older ones do.' She knew that her voice had been steady, and she took care to make her movements quiet and her manner natural and at ease. Not for the world would she have had Ellen know of the turmoil going on inside. It was the picture that hurt her, or rather that emphasized the hurt. Erskine's favorite picture of his father, the one that as a child he had daily kissed good morning, the one that now after all these years he always stood beside in silence for a moment after greeting her and she could not recall that he had ever forgotten to select from the flowers he brought home an offering for the tiny vase. How was it possible for his wife to have spent six months in his home without noting all this? And noting it, how could she possibly have interfered with that cherished corner? The morning had been a distinct advance on former experience. The new daughter had evidently misunderstood the spirit in which small interferences and small slights had heretofore been accepted, and determined on aggressive effort. Long before this, and as often as she chose, she had made what changes pleased her in the more pretentious parlour, and Mrs. Burnham had openly approved some of them, and had been pleasantly silent over others. She had also given explicit directions to the would-be rebel, Ellen, that the new lady's slightest hint was to be obeyed. There had been no pettiness in her thoughts about the changes. She was earnestly anxious to have her son's wife feel so entirely at home that she would not need to hesitate about carrying out her own tastes. But was it not to be supposed that a wife would consult her husband's tastes as well as her own? And his father's picture that he had cherished ever since he was a child— she had herself told Irene one morning, standing before that very picture, how Erskine had singled it out from all the others, and said decidedly, That one is Papa. And his wife could banish it to the attic. Ruth Erskine Burnham was used to mental struggles. There had been times in her life when her strong-willed feelings had got the upper hand and swayed her for days together. 
but it is doubtful if a more violent storm of feeling had ever swept about her than surged that morning. For a while the pent-up emotions of many weeks were allowed their way, but only for a little while. The Christian of many years' experience had herself too well in training for long submission to the enemy's control. By the time that delayed luncheon hour drew near, she believed that she was her quiet self again, ready to receive and assist in entertaining her daughter's guests, whoever they might be. As was her habit when under the power of strong feeling that must be held in check, she took refuge with her absent friends, and wrote a long letter to Marion Dennis, ignoring the immediate present utterly, and reveling in certain happy experiences of their past. When her unusually lengthy epistle was finished, she was startled at the lateness of the hour, and began to wonder how certain details of the dinner could be managed if luncheon were much longer delayed. Just then Ellen knocked at her door. "'They are most through luncheon, ma'am,' was her message. "'I heard you moving around, and I thought I'd venture to tell you.' "'Why, Ellen, how is this? I did not hear any call to luncheon.' "'You wasn't called, ma'am. She said you was likely asleep, and she wouldn't let me come up and see. She thinks you don't do anything but sleep when you are upstairs.' This last was muttered, and not supposed to be heard by her mistress. Ellen had evidently reached the limit of her endurance. Since the mistress said not a word, she ventured a further statement. "'There's four of them, ma'am, besides Mrs. Burnham, and it's long after three, and they're on the last course. I thought you would be wanting something to eat by this time.' Outwardly, Ruth was herself again. "'Thank you, Ellen,' she said. "'Since I am so late, I think I will not go down until the guests have left the dining-room. I am not in the least hungry.' I think on the whole I should prefer to wait until dinner is served. Her tone was gentleness itself, but there was in it that quality which made Ellen understand that she was dismissed. Then Mrs. Burnham went back to her room and sat down near the open window. The sweet spring air came to her, laden with the breath of the flowers she loved, but their odor almost sickened her. She had thought that her battle was fought and victory declared, and behold, it was only a lull. What was she to do? What ought she to do? Should she go down to the guests, apologize for tardiness, and act as though nothing had occurred to disturb her? That, of course, would be the sensible way, but could she do it well, with the closely observing and indignant Ellen to confront? It scarcely seemed possible, and she blushed for shame over the thought that she was afraid to meet the anxious eyes of her maid. Even while she waited and considered, a carriage swung around the corner and stopped before her door. Three ladies alighted, evidently with the intent of paying an afternoon visit. Among them was Mrs. Stewart, her most intimate acquaintance. Now indeed she would have to go down, but she would wait for a summons that would make it appear more natural. So she waited, but no summons came. The ladies, all of them her friends, made their call and departed. And others came, a constant succession of callers. The new spring day had tempted everybody out. Most of the people Mrs. Burnham knew by sight, some of them were comparative strangers, paying their first calls. What was being given as the reason why she was not there to meet them? The words of Ellen recurred to her, 
words that she had considered it wisdom not to seem to hear. She thinks you don't do anything but sleep when you are upstairs. The matron's lip curled a little. She was not given to sleeping by daylight. A fifteen minutes nap after luncheon was always sufficient, and even that was frequently omitted. It was a strange afternoon, the strangest that she had ever passed. She kept her seat at the window, almost within view, if the guests had raised their eyes, and saw friends who rarely got out to make calls, and whom she had always made special efforts to entertain. What must they think of her at home and well, and not there to meet them? And why was she not there? What strange freak or whim was this? Could her daughter-in-law hope to make a prisoner of her in her own house? Why did she sit there in that inane way, as though she were in very deed a prisoner? Why not go down as a matter of course, and take her proper place as usual? But the longer she delayed and watched those groups of callers come and go, the more impossible it seemed to do this. With each fresh arrival she felt sure that she would be summoned, and waited nervously for Ellen's knock. But no Ellen came. The day waned, and the hour for Erskine and dinner drew near, and still Mrs. Burnham sat like one dazed at that open window. An entire afternoon lost. When, before, had she spent a day in such fashion? She leaned forward presently, and watched Erskine's car stop at the corner, and watched his springing step as he came with glad haste to his home, and received his bow and smile as he looked up at her window. Now indeed she must go down, and go before he could come in search of her, and question her with keen gaze and searching words. Her eyes told no tales, they were dry, and there were bright spots glowing on her cheeks. She had not known what she should say, just how she should manage his solicitous inquiries. She would make no plans, she told herself, things must just take their course. Matters had so shaped themselves that any planning of hers was useless. Then she had gone down to that cheerful dining-room, and listened to the chatter of her daughter-in-law, and replied to her son as best she could. Now she was back in her room, and Erskine and his wife were out on the porch in the moonlight, and that slight, frequent cough was coming up to her. Presently he would come, and she dreaded it. For almost the first time in her life she dreaded to meet her son. He would be insistent, and she was not good at dissembling. And yet he must not know, he must never know how she had been treated that day. If only he would stay away, and give her a chance to think, to pray, to grow calm. Should she lock her door? Lock out her son? She could not do that. But she could not talk with him to-night. She would turn off her light, and ask him not to light up again and not to stay, because she was tired. That at least would be true. She was tired. For the first time in her life she was tired of life. She must get into a different spirit from this. After Erskine had kissed her good night, she would have it out with her heart or her will. Hark! He was coming. They were coming upstairs together, and Irene was chattering. Out went the lights in the mother's room. She heard the wife pass on to her own room. She heard her son, stepping lightly, stopping a moment before her door. Then he, too, passed on to his own room, and closed his door. 
End of chapter 12